Are we good to go this morning? I feel like I was waiting for a song. There was no song, but there's a sign. There's a sign. We are good to go. Okay, well, this seems professional. My name is Paul Huff. I'm the pastor here at Crosspoint Fellowship. If I haven't got the opportunity to meet you today, I am super, super happy that you're here with us this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. We are happy to see you. As Jake told you, if at any point you want coffee, you will not distract me. Go get some. We'd be happy for you to drink it. Uh, having said all that, today we are starting a new series called The Pursuit. And this may not surprise you, but we're going to be looking at Christ's death, the moments that came right before that death, and then his resurrection, which is why we as Christians celebrate Easter. And I'm going to talk to all of us like we don't know that much about it, okay? Because I think the review is good for each and every one of us. And so we're going to be looking at kind of the events surrounding Christ's death, leading right up into his crucifixion on the cross, and then what came three days later, his resurrection. And so we'll start, bear with me, uh, today is a day I'm really excited about, and I always like looking at the life of Jesus, but having said that, we could literally spend probably six months just looking at his story alone, and I'm doing it in about 20 minutes. So uh, if I was an auctioneer, it would go better, uh, but I'm not, so... Again, so looking at Christ, Christ was born, Christians believe, of a virgin, meaning his mother was a virgin. Uh, he was conceived through the Holy Spirit around 6 to 4 BC. And his ministry began not until 26 AD at the age of around 30 years old. Now, his ministry lasted approximately three years. So, in the span of his life, not super long, but it was really impactful, a really strong three years, so to speak. Now, Christ, when he came to earth and when he started his ministry, he was revolutionary in his teachings. He shouldn't have been, right? What he was teaching was, it was what was there in scripture the entire time. But Christ's teachings focused on loving others and following God, which is what the law that God gave Moses with the two tablets, if you ever have seen something like that, the Ten Commandments, we call it, right? God gave that law so that we could love one another. We talked last week, and if you weren't here last week, that's fine, about how the law was put into place to create harmony between believers and other believers, between believers and non-believers, and between believers and God. And so what was happening was they were focusing a lot more on following the rules, making sure that they checked off the boxes rather than loving others and following God. And so Jesus came with this revolutionary teaching that shouldn't have been revolutionary about exactly what I just said, loving God, following God, and loving others. Now, during his ministry, Jesus performed numerous miracles that would point to him being the Son of God, and that combined with his revolutionary teaching led to him having quite the following. Well, that became a problem for a group of religious elites often referred to as the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees, sometimes interchangeably, sometimes separately, but there was this group of religious elites who was used to having power and influence. And as Jesus came into the world and he brought these new teachings and started to get quite the following, they got upset because they were starting to lose their power. They were starting to lose their influence. And so they sought for a way to kill Jesus, a way to find uh, him at fault so that they could take his life. And Jesus knew that this was their scheme from the very beginning. He knew that his days were numbered. He knew that he was not long for this world and that his ministry probably wouldn't last much longer than the three years that he had. And so we're keeping all that in mind. In scripture, we come to Jesus just a few days before 
his death and he is celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. His disciples are his closest friends and his closest followers. And it's a meal that's become known as the Last Supper. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't. Right, but this meal known as the Last Supper. And this is different than all the other meals that Jesus has shared in Scripture before. Because typically when Jesus shares a meal, he goes to someone's house, they cook, they eat. Everybody from the community is trying to shove their way into the house. They pack in. They want to hear his teachings. They just want to be around Jesus. There's a, a famous story about a group of friends who had one of their friends was crippled. And they even cut a roof, a, cut, a hole in a roof of someone else's house so that they could get their friend near Jesus. This was the type of meal that Jesus typically shared. But this was completely different, completely different. It was much more secluded. Jesus kept the guest list at a minimum. It was, again, with his closest followers and closest friends. And it's during this meal that Jesus predicts that one of these men, one of his 12 disciples that has been roaming around with him, teaching and preaching and ministering to people would betray him. In Matthew 26, 20, it says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Truly, I tell you that one of you will betray me. Now, one by one, the disciples took turns denying that it would be them. No, it's not me, Christ. I would not do that to you until they came to a man named Judas, often referred to as Judas Iscariot. And Judas says something along the lines of, not me, Lord, I, I wouldn't betray you. But Jesus makes it clear to Judas that in fact, Judas, it is going to be you. And he does so in such a way that he didn't really sell Judas out to the other 11. Cause I got to tell you, in that other 11 is a man named Peter that we're getting ready to talk to. Peter always carried like a little, a short sword, a dagger, if you will, around with him. And he liked stabby time. I'm just going to be honest. Like he was ready to unsheath and cut at a moment's notice. Right. And so if, if Jesus would have been like, oh yeah, hey, everybody, it's Judas. Peter would have been like, well, I can take care of that. Okay. And so... Jesus kind of controlling the situation just makes it clear to Judas, hey, you know that I know it's going to be you. And there's something else that he says that in my mind is a little mind-blowing and, and, and quite frankly awesome. In Matthew 26, 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into this bowl with me will betray me. You see, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew that it was Judas who would sell him out. And yet he still offered his bowl to Judas to share in his meal. That's pretty, pretty amazing. If you ask me, because if I know somebody's betraying me, I might share a bowl of my food with them, but it's getting dumped on their head, right? It's not being offered for you to eat. Like you want to sell me out, be ready. Food fight. I don't know. <laughs> like that's what's really happening. Not at all in Jesus's mind. And so after this meal takes place, Jesus in his disciples, they get and they go up to the garden of Gethsemane. I've been trying to practice him for three days. I still can't say it. Say it. Gethsemane. That's close enough. It's a garden. It starts with a G. It's very famous because Jesus prayed there before his death. Okay. And so as he's on his way and they're going, he pulls his friend, his friend and one of his closest disciples next to his side, Peter. Remember, short sword, stabby time guy. And he lets Peter know, Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, before the end of our next day, you are going to betray me three times. And Peter is taken aback. No, not me. I will not 
do that. And so they go to the garden and Jesus is praying about the upcoming events, the things that he knows are about to happen to him. And it's while he's in that garden that his first prediction comes true. Judas comes with a group of these religious elites, the one that wants to kill Jesus, and he's here to betray him. And in 47 through 49, it says that while he was still speaking, meaning Jesus, Judas, one of the 12, arrived with him, was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once, to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Now, this wasn't necessarily a strange greeting. It's a greeting in the Middle East that happens a lot, right? You meet somebody uh, that you're really close to and you get a kiss on each cheek. It's like a hello. I remember one time when I was younger, we went to a family gathering that had a lot of my dad's side of the family. And I re remember this somewhat vividly because we we go in and I know that we're kind of meeting. Like we didn't do a lot with that side, but I got kissed so much that day. And I'm, I don't know exactly what's going on. And my dad, I remember him saying, it's fine. They're just saying hello, right? So this is a normal greeting. It's not that this was something strange that Judas did, but the fact that he was sharing a friend's kiss, a kiss that says, typically, I love you. I'm happy to see you. In a way to betray Jesus, I can only imagine broke Jesus's heart. And it must have been extremely tough for him. And after this, Jesus was arrested, but not before Peter pulled out his sword and stabby timed someone's ear off. Okay? And Jesus put it into that really quickly. He said, no, we're not going to do that. He actually heals the man right then and there. And if I was that man, I would have been like, nope, I'm out. Can't arrest this guy. But they take him anyways. And they take him before that religious elitist group, the Sanhedrin, a group that wants to falsely accuse Jesus of being blasphemous. And that's exactly what they do. And in Jewish culture, that punishment is punishable by death. And they do this all because he refuses to deny that he is the son of God. And right then and there, they spit on him and they slap him and they punch him and they begin to mock him. And this is the start of the abuse that Jesus will face leading up to his death. And it's at this point that Jesus' second prediction comes true. Peter's denials. You know, it's in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 70 that Peter first denies Jesus and the crowd recognizes him as one of Jesus' followers. And they say, aren't you, weren't you with him? And Peter says, nope, not me. Definitely not. It must have been somebody else with a sword that likes stabby time. I, don't, I, I gotta stop saying that. But, right, definitely not me, not me. And so he continues and Peter's still in the crowd and he's trying to witness everything that happens. And it's two verses later in 2672 that again, they say, there's something about you. We're pretty sure you were with Jesus. And he says, no, I was not with Jesus. I was not with Jesus. But then it's Matthew 26, 73 through 75 that says, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You have a similar dialect. When you speak, we hear Jesus. You must be from the same area. You clearly have been with one another. And Peter then begins to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And as soon as he said it the third time, the rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered Christ's words that Jesus had before spoken when he said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. And Jesus' second prediction had come true. And if things weren't bad enough for Jesus, if he hadn't already started the process of being beaten and spit upon and mocked, if he hadn't already been betrayed by someone he loved that was one of his closest friends, if he hadn't already been disowned by somebody who claimed that he would never leave his side, things just go further downhill. See, because Jesus is brought before a government official named Pilate. Now, Pilate's a Roman official. He actually has authority in this area, but mob mentality sometimes rules out, and we see that in our day and age all the time. You know, somebody wins a World Series or a Stanley Cup or an NBA championship, and all of a sudden, your librarian's lighting cars on fire, right? Mob mentality just takes over. We're watching out for you, Zoe. We know how crazy you can get when your team wins. Right, but we... Mom mentality takes over and Pilate seeing Jesus recognizes at least not really having a connection to Jewish culture, not really understanding who Jewish, who Jesus says he is. It's just like this guy hasn't done anything. He's, he said words. Why do you want to kill him? And they say, no, we, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so Pilate says, well, I've got a brilliant solution. I'm going to give you a choice. You can take back this murderer who we have imprisoned who has killed many in this community, a hardened criminal. You can have him back or you can take Jesus back. And what do they say? Give us the other guy. We'll take our chances. We'll take our chances. Release the criminal. But it wasn't enough for the mob to just have Jesus imprisoned. They wanted his life. And they begin to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, which was a punishment that was reserved for the worst of criminals. A punishment that you might imagine is extremely painful, where you are typically nailed, especially at that time, to a cross and where you hang until you die. And Pilate eventually gives in. And after he gives in, Jesus is beaten within an inch of his life. And then he's spit upon some more. And they gamble for his clothing. And they place a crown of thorns on his head. And they mock his followers' belief that he is king of the Jews, that he is the son of God. And Jesus suffers tremendously that's until he dies matthew 26 50 through 54 it says and when jesus cried out again in a loud voice he gave up his spirit at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook the rocks split the tombs broke open the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life they came out of their tombs after jesus resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And then they exclaimed, surely this was the son of God. Surely this must be the son of God. But it wasn't recognized until after he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. It wasn't recognized until he was disowned 
by probably his closest friend. It wasn't recognized until they falsely accused him and took his life for something he did not do wrong. But upon his death, many recognize that he is the son of God. Now, it's strange, and I know it sounds strange, but as Christians, we celebrate this moment of Christ dying on the cross, not because he suffered, not because of the awful things that he went through, but because of what Christ accomplished on that cross. Jesus paid our debt. His broken body and his spilled blood paid our debt for sin and for wrongdoing. And because of that sacrifice, we can experience forgiveness. And because of that sacrifice, the separation between us and God is gone. It's what's signified by the veil being torn. No longer do we have to be apart from God. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the ultimate debt. And we celebrate because we know that there was no other way for us to experience forgiveness without his sacrifice. But it's what came next that we celebrate today. See, Jesus was removed from the cross. He was wrapped in a clean linen. He was placed in a donated tomb for his everlasting burial place. And then that tomb was then guarded to prevent his resurrection from being faked. This is a detail that we forget a lot of times. In Matthew 27, 63 through 66, Sir, they said, this is the Sanhedrin, the religious elite speaking to Pilate, the government official. We remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver, Jesus, the liar, he said that in three days he will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now that three days is important. It's really important. Because geographically speaking, where Jesus was buried on the third day, decomposition of a corpse, don't know how else to say it, sets in. It takes place. If someone is buried for three days, there's no coming back. So that's why they say guard it until the third day. On the third day, you can leave it because then he'll be good and dead and everybody will know that he is good and dead and we won't have to worry about this deception anymore. And so Pilate tells him, hey, by all means, go. Make it as secure as you know how. Good luck. Post a guard. And for two days, Jesus lied in that tomb dead. And for two days, the hopes of his closest followers and believers were extinguished. But on the third day, everything changed. Absolutely everything changed. Because when two of his female followers went to visit Jesus at the tomb, things were not as they were the day before. 
Matthew 28, starting in verse 2 and going to verse 10. It says, there was a violent earthquake. This is as the women are going to visit Jesus. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb. He rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. They fainted. Scary angel, big and bright, pass out. That's where we are so far. And the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see, as Christians, we believe that what Jesus did on the cross paid the debt for our sins he made the payment it could have ended right then and there forgiveness is ours but his resurrection which is what we celebrate today on easter often does not get the attention that it deserves See, the cross paid our debts for wrongdoing, but his resurrection allows us to live and to thrive. Jesus never came, hear me out, to solely forgive. Every time Jesus mentioned what he was going to do in the future on the cross, it was so that you might live. You might live, not so that you can get out of time out. Not so you can stop feeling bad about all the wrong you've done. Those are good things that have happened because of what Jesus did. But Jesus came so that you might live. He was never about just following the rules. He was about experiencing life in its purest form. He doesn't want you to just get through your day to day. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to have life and joy. He wants you to have that experience. Forgiveness was won on the cross, but life was made available when Jesus chose to defeat death. And because Jesus defeated death, we get to share in that ability that we also might defeat death. Yes, our earthly bodies will pass away. They absolutely will. But there is an eternity far greater than what we could ever comprehend or imagine waiting for us if we will put our faith and our trust in Jesus' actions this day. And I'm telling you right here, right now, that I would not be saying these words if I did not believe them with everything that I am. In John 10, 9 through 11, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. 
And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And might I add, no one gets to fully comprehend and understand what it means to live life without Christ. If you have never been told this before today, I'm going to be bold enough to be the first one to tell you. Christ loves you. Christ loves you. With his whole entire being. And I recognize that that may seem bold to you, but you are worthy of his love. Not me saying that. Christ deemed it to be so. When he made the decision to willingly go to the cross, he was saying for generations to come, you are worthy of my sacrifice. And God loves you exactly as you are today. Exactly as you are today. Scripture teaches us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinning, while we were still lost, Christ died for us then. It wasn't an action that was meant to be for when we got our act together. It wasn't an action that was meant for whenever we straighten things out. It was meant for people in the darkest, deepest valley. Christ died for people that are in the midst of addiction. Christ died for people that are in the midst of complete and total darkness and depression and wandering. And he is there to be your light in the darkness. In whatever condition you find yourself in today, Christ died for you. And when you meet Christ, when you commit to Christ, you will change. I am living proof. We don't have time today, but I would love to sit down and tell you my story. It's got all the twists and turns. From depression, to drug addiction, to suicide to all sorts of things. I am living proof that Christ can change a life. What you need to know, what I want you to know if you hear nothing else, is that God sent his son to die for you. Jesus, his son, willingly went to the cross so that he might pay your debt, so that he might defeat sin. And then Christ chose life in resurrection to defeat death. And here is something that we must understand. Christ died for those that betrayed him. Christ died for those that denied him. Christ died for those that falsely accused him. He died for you. And thank God, he died for me as well. That is why we celebrate today. And he wants you to experience, Christ wants you to experience both the forgiveness that's available through the cross and life that's available through his resurrection. My request to you today, my only request is that you explore the things that I've just said. Whether you've been a Christian for years and years, remembering what it is that Christ has accomplished, never a bad thing. If you are not a Christian today, and I'm right about the things that I'm saying, and there is truth 
in what it is that I am saying today. You owe it to yourself to reflect on my words and decide if you think they hold any merit. And I go back to this. If I didn't believe it, if I didn't believe it with my whole being, I would not waste your time in telling you this. I would not be here today. It is 1048. I would still be asleep if my wife would let me. But Christ, he changed everything for me. And I can only tell you about my personal victories and my personal story, but I can tell you that my accomplishments, the things that I've overcome, they were not me, but they were Christ within me. And I know that Christ can do the same thing for you. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now. I thank you for this day and this time together as we explored what it was that was accomplished through the sacrifice of your son. Through the love that you have for us enough to, to let your son come and walk this earth and be abused and be mocked and be beaten and then be killed. All because you loved us. We can't comprehend. It doesn't make sense. I would not give my children for anyone else. And I think... Everyone else in this room that has children would say the same. They would not give their children for anyone else. But you are not us. And Christ, recognizing your love for people and having your same spirit and loving us as well, chose to go and die on a cross to experience the most excruciating exit that this earth has ever seen. He went and did that because of the love that he has for people. Christ came to love the world and to follow God. And that is what you call us to do as well. You tell us the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. And that is the focus of our life. It's not about checking boxes. It's not about avoiding bad things. It's not about not sinning. It's about living. It's about life. It's about loving. You want us to experience the fullness of what life has to offer. And I just think it's important for people to understand that that only happens when they experience life in you. And Lord, we are thankful that we can experience that because, yes, of what Christ did on the cross, but also what happened three days later. Because of his resurrection, we too can be resurrected. And we get to experience a life that would just completely shut down our brains because we cannot possibly begin to imagine how sweet that life will be. So God, I ask today that if there's anyone out here who doesn't know you, who can't confidently say that I am a follower of Christ, that they would explore the things that I have said today, that they would seek you, that they would ask you to reveal yourself to them if you are real so that they can experience what it is I have experienced in life. 
And if they want to come talk to me about that today, Lord, then by all means, move their feet, convict them. Do not give them comfort until they come and have that conversation. Lord, we have people out in this room that I know are hurting, that are lost, that feel rejected, that feel like they have been betrayed by this world, that they have been denied by the ones that they love dearest that have been falsely accused of wrongdoing that they have never done. God, I pray that you would be with those hearts today, that you would help mend, that you would show love, that you would surround them with their presence, your presence, and that you would honor them being here today. Help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus who were pierced on a cross, but overcame death to reach out to the world wide open. We ask these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This time right now is a time of reflection. It's also a time for prayer. If you need prayer for anything, I will tell you this. You don't have to necessarily be a believer, but if you've tried all other options, why not try this one as well? Allie's going to be right over here under this television. She's raising her hand. If you'd rather pray with a young lady, please go pray with Allie. Jake is back here under that television. You can pray with Jake. I'm going to go straight back by the sound booth. If you would like to come pray with me, it would be an honor for all three of us to be able to pray for you today. But this time right now is a time of worship, a time to thank God and Christ for what it was that they accomplished, but also a time to reflect, a time to think about where you stand with Christ. Now, I know I'm going to be back up here in a little bit, but I want to be the first one to invite you back. This was week one of a new series that we're calling The Pursuit. And for the rest of the weeks, we're going to look at how we can pursue this Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. And I think that it could be special for you. Every single one of you. I know that it will be special for me. I always learn as much as I feel like I teach because I think God called me to be a pastor so I would listen. But I want to be the first one to invite you back. We would be completely honored to have you again. Otherwise, stand with us now. Worship, pray, reflect. This time is yours. <laughs>